Hey, Liverpool One Church, how is everybody doing today? It is great to have you with us for part three of our current series called Welcome Home. Now, before we get into all of that, I just want to share with you momentarily a brief story. Now, I started work when I was like 14 years of age. I got myself a Saturday job, a weekend job, working at this I think a pretty cool store out in town and it would sell all of this designer gear. And I think that the main reason why I wanted to work at this particular store was because working there entitled you to 50% off of all of the jeans and the clothes and the shirts and everything, which on designer label clothing meant like that was a huge, huge discount that was going to be available. So I would like get, the, get up early and travel on a train for like 40 minutes and get into town and go and do this job. But there was this one particular guy there and he was like a large, imposing individual. I won't tell you his name, but he was called Mark, and he was like really hard work. I mean, like he was the manager of this entire store. He was like six foot five, six foot six, a huge, huge guy, and he was an absolute bully. I mean, like, bearing in mind, when you start work at 14, you don't really know a lot about anything in life, let alone, you know, the whole kind of working environment type of thing. And um, he would have these like fits of rage. You know, have you ever been around somebody where they just outburst into this fit of rage and you're just kind of thinking to yourself like, why are you even doing that? Like, that's, that's just stupid. You need to just simmer down a little bit. You need to calm yourself the heck right down because you're going to give yourself a heart attack. Well, well, that was this guy. I mean, like, if the shelves weren't polished perfectly well, there would be a staff meeting in the storeroom, which basically meant that whoever hadn't polished the shelf well enough would literally have a spitting contest with Mark six inches away from your face whilst he would just shout and bawl at you. Some, at some point, I've even seen it, that he took me into the storeroom and he started picking all the jeans off the shelf and just throwing them at the wall. And I'm thinking like, like dude, what are you doing? Like, that's just, that's just crazy. But he was the kind of character that if you ever try and reason with someone like that, it just makes the more irate. Have you ever been around someone and you're just kind of thinking, what are you doing? And um, he would be so aggressive at some times that you would think, man, he's going to literally punch me. He's going to knock me out right now. And at 14, you kind of like cower back from that because he's a six foot six guy and he's been in the working environment for a, a lot longer than I had. But he was just a bully. And whenever he'd have you in a one-on-one -on -one environment, he'd try and make you feel small and he'd put you down in front of everybody else. And, you know, if it wasn't you getting that treatment off him one weekend, then it would be somebody else. And you know that it would be coming to you the next weekend. He was just a nightmare. And there was like, there's nothing you could ever do or say to try and win him round or befriend him or you could never work hard enough to please him. He was just an absolute bully. I played five-a-side, though, at the time, and there was one time we were on this football pitch. It was the first time we'd ever played. And bearing in mind, there's people on the sidelines and there's everybody on the pitch, and Mark was six foot six, and he was in goal, and I was playing in a position that was a long way away from the goalkeeper. And I can just remember this one time, I just heard him shouting from the goal line, like, something ridiculous. You know, like, goalies shout things like, 
get the ball. And it's like, you think? You think we should do that? That's a great idea. And he just started effing and jeffing. And I can remember as a 14-year-old, just kind of like turning around and giving him this one-fingered salute, which I've got to be honest, right? When you lead a church, you shouldn't really admit to things like that. You should say things. And I just prayed for him and um, it was just awesome. But, but I just like lost my temper. But I realized that, that he couldn't do anything about it because there's so many other people around the pitch and on the pitch. He couldn't hit me. He couldn't do anything. So I felt in that moment like this is my chance to get revenge. But he was just a bully. He was like the worst manager I've ever had to work under. You know, the great thing, though, about working under Mark for such a long period of time and bearing in mind that he made me hate going to work, he made me detest that train journey into the shop. The one good thing about having Mark as my boss is that it taught me so much about how not to be a boss. It taught me so much about how not to lead people. It taught me so much about how to stay cool and calm and don't respond in heated moments. It just taught me so much exactly how not to be. You know what's really funny in Scripture is you can find occurrences like that happening everywhere. You know, I think that the main reason why King David, who's found in the Old Testament, did so well as a king was because he worked under King Saul. And it wasn't that King Saul was a good king because King Saul was a bad king, but King David learned how not to be king by being under King Saul. And there are so many occasions in life where you've got to kind of just take stock and look at who's around you because you can learn how not to be as a result of their mistakes and their misguided ways. In our Welcome Home series, we started off by talking from Luke chapter 15, which, as a very brief recap, it's quite a famous story in all of Scripture. It's famous because it's about a father who had a son, and his son went away from the father's house, and he went crazy. I mean, like he in essence said to his dad, I wish that you were dead. And he said that so that he could inherit all of his father's money. And then he was able to just go and spend all of that money on drink and on drugs, on prostitutes. He would have been in the casino if he was working here in Liverpool in this day and age, just wastefully spending it all. And we started to speak from this story, as many people do in many churches. But the problem about that story is that we often think that that's a story about a father and a son. And we as communicators, we always talk about the father because we want people to know that the father is representative of God and the way that the father is with this crazy wayward son when he returned home is exactly the same way that God feels and thinks towards us. So as a church, we always want a kind of major on the idea that God is a good God and God is caring towards you, 
He's kind and He is considerate towards you, that you really are the apple of His eye. And that's not dependent on like what you've done or who you are. I mean, even if you've never been to church or never even lived a life that you see or think as being good enough, then God is still desperately interested in who you are. And we as communicators will always talk about that aspect of the story. And rightfully so. Because we as a church... We want to be about everyone, and we understand that that happens when we talk about the good things of God. You know, if you talk about the good things of God, it's that that makes people's hearts turn and change towards Him. It's it's not about standing up here with a big stick and shouting, the end is nigh. I mean, if that ever worked, it must have been like 300 years ago. I mean, like today in our city, in our culture, that is just not our thing. So we will always have that story as part of the very heartbeat of our church. But that story is not a story about a father and a son. It's not helped either by the subheadings that some of you have in your Bibles. When you open your New Testament and you go to Luke chapter 15, what you'll see is that there's a subheading, or there is in mine, and it just says it's the story of the prodigal son. But it's not just a story about a son. Neither is it a story only about a father, because the story's clear in telling us that the father had two sons. It's a story about a broken family unit. It's a story about two sons. It's a story about two brothers. There comes a problem in our Christian faith that if we only look at what we want to see and if we only listen to what we want to hear, then we'll never experience that fullness in terms of our relationship with God that we all earnestly, deeply desire and yearn for. And the problem can sometimes come is We can come to church and we can go, man, this is awesome. This is like welcome home. Like God loves you. God cares for you. God's considerate about you. And we can kind of walk away knowing what God thinks. And that in and of itself can make us feel great. But that creates a problem. Because if you come to church and you only learn and acquire information about who God is and what God thinks towards you, but you don't allow it to change the way that you act, and you respond, then if you follow Jesus, that's a problem. Now, if you're in church today and you're just like, hey, listen, I'm just here checking things out. I just wanted to see what this whole thing was about. Then firstly, let me say, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. And there is already a bunch of people just like you that come every single week and not only at the 11 o'clock, but at the six o'clock tonight. There is a bunch of people that come exactly the same as you do with that mindset. I just want to see what this is all about. You are most welcome. But I guess that today's talk is geared slightly more so towards those of you that already say, I'm a Christian. It's geared towards those of you that already say, yeah, I follow Christ. 
Now, if you are in church just checking things out, this is awesome because you get to kind of sit around the family table and see how this thing really works. And hopefully you will see how we believe that when you know what God thinks, it should change how you act. And that means for us as a church, that there should just be a certain way that as we follow Christ, that we should all be individually and collectively as a church. It's like we understand that when you know how good God is, that that should change how you act. When you know how good God is, that should shape and formulate how we are together as a church. So to help us do that, I wanna go back to the story of the prodigal son that's actually a story about a broken family. It's a story about a father that had two sons. It's a story about two brothers. And look at one particular character in the story that many of us think is peripheral to the narrative, but actually is not at all. I want us to concentrate and look at the life lessons that we can learn from the other brother. I want us to look at what the other brother that often we don't even get to when we read the story of the prodigal son, I want us to know, well, what does his actions mean for us today? Because I believe this, if we are going to create and build that church that really is about everyone, then it's gonna take us all collectively. Not just putting signs on the wall that say, welcome home, but rather that out of the very DNA and fabric of who we are as a church, that the sound of this house in every area where it's written and where it's not written, where it's spoken and where it's unspoken, the sound of the house needs to be that that ushers in a sense of saying, welcome home. But that doesn't happen by mistake. That only happens on purpose. And I think that there are so many life lessons that we can learn together from the other brother. So. We're going to go Luke 15, we're going to read the second part of the prodigal son's story, and we're going to pull out some lessons that we can learn from the other brother. So verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So at this point in the story, this prodigal son the one that had wished his father dead and taken all of his father's money and spent it all on wild living. Now, the son has come back to the house and the brother kind of goes, oh my gosh, this son that went wayward is being welcomed home. So now it's talking about what happens at the point at which the son returns. So the older brother, he heard music and dancing. A party's being thrown. Verse 26. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Because he was a scouser. He's like, what is going on? What, what is this? Verse 27, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with me mates. 
For when this son of yours, who's wrecked everything, squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, because he's posh. You're always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So now in this family unit, there is this great contrast of opinions. The sons come home and the father is wanting to throw the party. The father is like, let's give him a coat, let's put some sandals on his shoes, let's give him a ring with the family crest on it again, we're gonna kill the fattened calf, we're gonna invite everybody round, it's gonna be a great day. The father was up for celebrating and the brother was just like, dad, I do not get this. This does not make any sense to me. If we were to divide those two ways of thinking towards the son and the brother, you could say that one welcomed him home and the other didn't. But not welcoming people home is something that we can all inadvertently do unless we learn the lessons from the other brother. So I know that it's a really bad thing if the guy that's doing the talk stands up and he goes like, hey, I've got 10 points. And you're like, what, are you for real? Are we like gonna get home for dinner today? This is gonna take forever. So I want you to be encouraged. I'm not gonna give you 10 points. I understand, I'm with you. That would be crazy. That would be way too much. So I'm gonna make it so much easier for you and give you nine points. Cause nine psychologically, it just feels so much better, right? 10 is way too much, but nine is kind of palatable. We can all manage with nine. But I just wanna rapid fire through these nine things that I think that we have to choose never to be like in our church. Because if we become these things, it would be like us understanding what the Father thinks and feels towards us and then never allowing that to change anything that we do. And if we become like the other brother by choosing not to learn the life lessons that are available to us, then we will absolutely create a heartbeat that sounds out towards people that says, you are not welcome at this church. And you know what? When we started this church, we risked everything to create a place that would be about everyone. So it's good that we talk often about exactly what we need to be for those of us that say we follow Christ in order to create that environment that says, welcome home. So here are nine things that if you do these things, you are just like the other brother. So you're like the other brother when you take offense too easily. If you're the type of person that like, you know, somebody just has to look at you in the wrong way, and by the way, that's gonna happen in church. Like people are gonna say things that you don't necessarily like. Sometimes they're gonna be a way that you think that maybe they're being off with you. Maybe they're being funny and more often than not, they're absolutely not, but you think that they are, so you take offense at something that was never intended to offend you at all. This can happen all the time, especially in church, especially where there's many, many people that come at many, many services and many, many events. There is gonna be 
so much opportunity for you to be offended in church. And if you're looking for the perfect church, I can guarantee you, (laughs) do not, whatever you do, think that you're going to find that church here. Because we understand we are just a bunch of really imperfect people. In essence, we've gotten so much stuff wrong, but we know that we are loved and accepted by a very, very perfect God. But you're like the other brother if you take offense too easily. Verse 26 says this. So he's talking about the conversation now that happens between the other brother and the servant. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? What's going down? What's happening here? He can hear the music. He can hear the fact that, you know, there's a bit of a barbecue going. I was like, what's going on? What is going on here? And he's just infuriated because he doesn't know about all the details that have gone on around him. He starts to take offense because maybe he feels that the father should have informed him first. Maybe he feels that there should have been a family meeting first and he doesn't know. And now when he comes home, he's finding out from the servant of the entire estate that the dad's throwing a party and he's taking offense. But this can happen to each and every one of us so easily. Do you know one of the lessons that I had to learn just as a leader in church? I had to learn as we grew in numbers, I had to learn that it was okay for me not to know everything. Because there was a point in time when there was 10 of us and we all met in our living room, I knew everything at every given moment. And I mean, like, it doesn't matter where you sit on the pendulum swing. If you're a leader, you always like to have that sense of knowing what's what because it maybe at times it gives you a sense of comfort because you feel like you're in control a little bit. And when you know what's happening everywhere, you feel like you can bring guidance and direction to everything. And it's cool when it's small, but, but as things grow, I mean, you just don't know everything often, not even all the time. And there are so many occasions where I have had to intentionally learn, you know what? I might not know anything about that at all, but I trust that you do and I'm excited that you do. And I'm okay with not being privy to all of the information. You've got to choose not to take offense when somebody in your life group says something that maybe you're thinking, hmm, when they said that, I wonder if they were meaning this. I mean, were they trying to subliminally get a message out to the room to let everybody else know what's going on in my life? Is that what was going on there? Like, and when they said that, were they trying to have a dig at me? Were they subliminally trying to have a go at me? Because chances are, they just weren't at all. So if we're gonna create an environment that says to people, welcome home, we've gotta choose not to take offense. Number two, when you think that what you, you're like the other brother, when you think that what you do is more important than who you are. The scripture reads that the older son, the other brother, was out in the field. So the other brother's out in the field and for every day and every minute and every moment that he's out in the field, he's creating within himself this sense of entitlement from the perspective of, because I'm working, because I'm doing this, that that is the most important attribute about me. And he missed the point entirely. It's not about what you do that really counts in a local church like ours. It's about who you really are. You know, when we first started church and things had started to grow a little bit, what was funny was we got to about, I don't know, maybe 70 people, 80 people. We were like, revival has hit. It was about 80 of us. And um, 
At the time, we, we didn't really have anything. We didn't, certainly didn't have any money. We didn't have any buildings or any facilities. And we were busking in and out of different venues, fixing vans between Sundays to make sure that the small amount of kit and gear that we did have would be at the right place at the right time. And if I look back on it, half of me kind of thinks towards it like, man, that was such a fun time. And it was. But in reality, it was a really hard time. It was incredibly difficult. I know that some of you would know in part some of our story, but like my wife and I and as a family, we sacrificed a lot. We gave up our jobs. We sacrificed everything we had financially. And, you know, we didn't have a lot at home and we certainly didn't have a lot in the church. And it just felt really tough. I ended up having this conversation with a guy, another minister in Liverpool, and he turns around and he basically says, hey, listen, the church that I've got is not working anymore. I've got like 15 people, but the good news is, is I've got this building and the building is worth 150,000. He said, I'm putting it on the market. We've been told that it's gonna sell really quickly. He said, I'm gonna give you the 150,000 pounds. And I'm sitting there, I'm going like, well, wow, this is incredible. This sounds awesome. And he said, um, and I, I don't want anything in return. Like, honestly, I don't want anything apart from one thing. And there's always one thing, isn't there, right? And I was like, okay, what's that? He says, well, I'll give you the 150,000 pounds from the sale of our church building into your church. But all I want in return is to co-lead your church and 50% of your church. And I wanna be able to do 50% of the speaking on the platform in your church that's got traction and is growing and is gaining momentum. And I was like, dude, that is not how it works. Are we in between a rock and a hard place right now? Financially, yes. Are things tough right now? Yes. But our vision as a church is not for sale. Like, who God has called us to be, like, you can't buy that. And even if you could, it wouldn't work for you because imitation is your biggest limitation, right? The best thing you can do is find out what the God call is on your life and then walk in that lane. Don't try and walk in someone else's lane. That's just crazy. It's not who God is. It's not how God works. It's not how it works. But he thought that what he brought to the table was more important than who he was. What he thought was a quick fix here, I'm gonna buy into what he perceived at that time was a winning church. I'm gonna gain some momentum and kind of fly on the tails of that church. He thought that what he did and what he was able to bring was more important than the person that he was in the depth of his soul and he completely misunderstood it. He had the same attitude as the other brother. And that's what happens when you think that what you do is more important than who you are. You're like the other brother. When you make all that's good all about you. Verse 29. But he answered his father, because he's a scouser, he said, Dad, Look at all these years I've been slaving. Notice how he says slaving. He doesn't say working. He says slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. In other words, he's saying like, like this. Dad, look at my project. Dad, look at what I've done, Dad. 
Dad, come, come see what I've accomplished for the family. Dad, come and see what I've done for the tribe. Dad, come and see how good a job and how reliable and how trustworthy I am. Dad, why don't you just come over here and give me a right little pat on the back. Have you ever been around anybody and they just kind of, they give off this sentiment all the time of like, <laughs> how good am I? Like, I'm pretty awesome, aren't I, you know? Have you ever been around anybody like that? Well, that's what this other brother was doing right now. He was saying, I'm gonna make everything that's good that's happening all about me and my achievements and my accomplishments. And we become like the other brother when we try and make out that everything that's good that's happening is all a result of my doing. I was with um, two uh, uh, pastors who lead significantly large churches. And at different times, I've asked them the same question. Like, what is it that you think that has, that has made your church grow large numerically? One of them, who has the largest church that I know, it's incredibly large. When I asked him, like, what is it? Like, how come your churches, how come this has happened? Whenever you ask him that question, and I've heard him ask that question by many other people over many years now, he always says the same thing. He always says it like this. I think it's probably, I mean, I don't know, but it's probably because we've just got an incredible team and God has just brought some amazing people around us. And man, they're so gifted. They're so awesome. Like, they're so amazing. And yet I'm sat there thinking to myself, like, and yet you are the best leader I have ever come across. And you never mention you. He's always saying, I think it's probably the team. Like, oh, I think it's probably down to the staff in part. I think it's probably down to the volunteers. And yet in contrast, I asked a guy that had a substantially smaller church, but it was still quite large numerically, exactly the same question. Like, what is it that makes you think the reason is that your church has grown? He just turned around and he just said, because he was from Northern Ireland, he just goes, undoubtedly my preaching. And I just sat there and I thought like, did you just say that? Like, even if you thought that your preaching was amazing, don't say it. I mean, like, that's just, like, that's why your church has grown, not down to anything else or anyone else. Like, nobody else has ever done anything. The only reason is your preaching. I'm like, just don't say it because you just like the other brother when you make everything that's good all about you. Hey, if you're doing something that's good, I promise you, you don't need to tell anybody because everybody already knows. Hey, you're like the other brother when you make all the bad about all of them. Verse 30, it says this, but when this son of yours, so he's talking to his dad, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. In other words, that same brother that was saying, Dad, look at me, look what I've been doing, is now saying, Dad, once you've finished looking at me and what I've been doing for the family in the fields, remember it was your brother that's, it's your son, my brother that's ruined and wrecked everything. Like, Dad, remember of the bad that he's brought to us. Dad, remember of the trouble that he's caused. He's just spent all of the money. This has gone crazy. This is just terrible. In other words, he's just pointing the finger. You know, if there was an overarching um, sentiment that I think that should come out of our church all of the time, if we're gonna create a welcome home attitude and feel an environment, it should be one of overriding grace and never pointing the finger. Because I'm so glad, like honestly, 
I'm so glad no one's pointing the finger at me, like seriously, because you could all find many, many reasons to point the finger. But knowing that you're not pointing the finger at me makes it so easy to never ever try and point the finger at anybody because I want to be full and overflowing and oozing with a heart that says, I'm going to be gracious towards you because, because God's never pointed the finger towards me. He's been gracious to me, so I'm going to be gracious to you. But you're like the other brother when you make all the bad about all of them. Number five, you're like the other brother when you can't celebrate with someone else. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. In other words, the older brother was just saying, you know what, I'm not, I'm not gonna celebrate. I'm not gonna enjoy the fact that the son's home. I'm not gonna celebrate with him. You know what I love about our worship team and Haley, who was leading um, today, what I love about her in particular is that she is like seriously high talent when it comes to singing and leading a church in worship. I mean, like the girl was aerial at Disney World and you know she could make it on Broadway without a shadow of a doubt yet she brings a talent into the local house because that's where her heart is knitted but what I love about her attitude is that this is what happens all the time by the way is typically talent repels talent like if you're a good singer if you're a good musician you push people away from you who are a threat to your gift like if you find someone else that's good at doing what you do, you feel threatened by them. Well, that's not what she does. She gets around all of these girls who can sing just as well as her. And she takes them out for coffee and she pastors them and she leads them and she teaches them. And she's got a heart that says, I want them not only to be able to do what I do, but I want them to be better than what I can do and all that I can be. Because she understands You've got to be able to celebrate the talent and the strength in the people that are around you, even if that means at times you feel threatened. Just don't go there. This picture is of a little boy in our church, and his name is Luca Alume, and some of you will know him. He is an Italian stud muffin in the making. And um, what I love about this family, who are incredibly special to us, is that Luca's parents, and this was taken on his first birthday, and his first birthday was an incredible day because we were celebrating because we all knew and I've spoke to them and asked them if it's okay if I mention this, but, but on Luca's first birthday, they had been at that point 13 years waiting for a baby. And every single year when they were without Luca and now obviously they have him and he's just brilliant, he's just incredible. But what you don't know about their story is that for probably 10 or 11 of those years, they would come around to our house in Christmas week and they would always buy gifts, not only for Emma and I, but for all of our children. And I just think, you know what? That must have been incredibly difficult when you are choosing to engage and celebrate in the blessing for somebody else that you're dreaming of desperately in your own heart. Like that, that, that's not an easy thing to do, but I think that that speaks of great character to the people that they are. And it kind of makes me go, and doesn't that make sense that after time, has gone and you've spent years celebrating the wins in other people's lives that you then receive the win that you desperately wanna see in your own. I think that that's how God works and we've gotta choose as a church to never be like the other brother and not celebrate with somebody else. Number six, you're like the other brother, we're gonna be quick on this one. When you spit your dummy out, because that happens, right? You spit your dummy out sometimes and you don't need to do it. Verse 28, it tells us that the brother was angry. He's not happy. He is seriously vexed. And the bottom line is this. Do you know that when you're angry, it's exactly the same for the other brother as it is for you and I today. When you're angry, the root of your anger 
is simply because you're not getting your own way. Like when you get down to it, I know that we can list the reasons and he said and she said and that happened. No, 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 no. When it gets down to it, in its roughest form, it's just because you're not getting your own way. You know, in a church as big as ours is becoming, there is gonna be so many times where you're just not gonna get your own way. There are so many times when I don't get my own way, but I understand that I think it's better to be part of a humble success than a proud failure where one person or everybody tries to get their own way all of the time. So don't be like the other brother. Don't spit your dummy out. Number seven, you're like the other brother when you strive for recognition. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look at all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat I could celebrate with me friends. Imagine your kids coming home being like, your dad, give me a goat. Like a goat? What what the flip is that? I don't even know. But he's like having a moment because he's like, dad, you're not giving me the recognition that I think that I deserve. I think that I'm working really hard in the field right now. I think that I'm working really hard on the farm right now. Dad, you're not just recognizing all that I'm doing. Can I just encourage you? If you feel like you're serving your heart out in an area of church and you just feel like you're not getting the recognition that you probably do deserve, can I just let you know something? If no one's patting you on your back whilst you stood out there in the car park and high-fiving kids and making teas and cleaning on the weekend before a Sunday and doing all that you're doing, if you ever feel like, man, I'm just not getting the recognition that I deserve, I want you to know this, it doesn't matter. Do you know why? Because there is not one thing that you do that goes unnoticed by the one person that it really counts towards. Your Father in heaven, he knows and sees everything that you do. So don't be like the other brother, striving for recognition. Just be faithful in the small things. Number eight, you're like the other brother when you're divisive with your language. And I don't think we need to major on this one, but just notice this, verse 30. The other brother says to the father, but this son of yours, notice the disassociation there. He doesn't say, notice this brother of mine. He says, this son of yours. Language can be divisive. Language can create distance. You know, and in a house like ours, where there's young people, older people, middle-aged people, I think we should always be really careful with our language and go out of the way, go out of our way all of the time to make sure that the language and the words and the phraseology that we use is, is gonna be building rather than tearing down because the way in which you talk is always gonna do one of those two things. It's only gonna build or tear down. So don't be like the other brother. Understand that when you're divisive, it happens so easily when your language is off. Finally, you're like the other brother when you value what is fair over what is right. Verse 32. But we are to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So now this is the father saying to the other brother, like, we're going to party and it doesn't make any sense at all I know I understand it doesn't come across as being fair at all I know I understand but I am gonna party and the story recounts how when the son comes back the dad gives him a 
jacket to wear and he puts a ring on his finger and he gives him a pair of sandals, which were obviously Nike Jerusalem's and the sun that's been out going crazy for a while is like, are you for real that all this is happening for me? Like the fattened calf and the barbecue's going and the drinks are flowing and the neighbours are coming round. And that happened because the father chose to do not what was fair, but what was right. And I want you to know, that Jesus did exactly the same all of the time. Jesus had a crowd and then he had 12 disciples. And in his 12 disciples, there were three that he hung with all of the time that were his inner circle that he confided in. And then of the three, there was only one that scripture tells us that he loved. Now, is that fair? No, but is it right? Yes. And as a church, we're gonna do what's right over what is fair all of the time. And if that means us going out the way and being gracious towards people who, according to the fair chart, doesn't make any sense, then I want you to know that I'm okay with that. And I want you to be okay with that too. I want you to know that people can come in and it is slate white clean. It might not be fair, but it is what is right. So as we close, I just want us to make sure that we never carry the heartbeat like the other brother. Because knowing that God is good does not do anything unless we choose to allow it to change how we act and respond collectively as a church together. Let's stand to our feet, we're gonna pray.